Welcome to Mates and Dates, a podcast for young people by young people. We're a team of five from across Sydney and we'll be talking about the experiences of young people becoming independent and building and maintaining healthy relationships. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on Camaragal Land and we extend this acknowledgement to wherever you may be listening to this podcast from. I'm your host, Ed, and today I'm with Jen. How are you, Jen? I am good. I am (laughs) in a very good mood because I discovered that Ed is a closeted Robert Patterson fan. Okay, well, you know, (laughs) it's not not that big of a deal. He has been binge-watching TikToks about Robert Patterson. Look, I think we're both Robert Patterson fans, but um, I would describe myself as like, you know, post-Twilight indie film, Robert Patterson, you know, lighthouse, good time, and you're like... Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) I am Team Edward. Of course. Great name. If you are Team Jacob, stop listening because Bella. Anyways. Not on. Well, you know, he's also Batman, so coming out very soon, very excited. Shameless plug. (laughs) Go see it in the movies. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Talented actor. But I think we should talk about today's episode, get on track. Um, we're joined today by Dragan Wright, who is a psychotherapist who specializes in complex trauma. Um, he's actively involved in the LGBTQ plus um, community, particularly working with queer youth. This episode came about because we really wanted to understand why people respond to conflict in different ways. I'm personally really interested in attachment theory and have done a lot of research into trauma and relational dynamics. So I'm really looking forward to Dragan's insight. Hopefully he can give us some advice on how we can communicate better and resolve conflicts in our relationship in a healthier way. We've all heard of fight, flight, freeze responses. So we're hoping to unpack where these reactions come from and how to manage them. It's important to note that trauma isn't always related to a catastrophic life event. Our emotional responses are often driven by our past experiences, which we might not even be aware of. Hello, Dragan. Thank you for joining us on Mates and Days. Um, I think firstly, we would maybe get you to describe your title and what you do. Yeah, cool. I would say I'm a trans queer psychotherapist. I work with complex trauma, which could mean, you know, the trauma of things that we've received or um, which could be, you know, abuse and things like that or various forms of violence or the trauma of things that we haven't received, like neglect, you know, things like connection, like learning about connection. It could be the experience of safety. It could be getting encouragement, affirmation, um, even getting good education on things like communication and conflict resolution. Like those are the things we need to develop into, you know, good, healthy adults. So I'm really interested in the sort of the missing experiences and, and I work a lot with that. And as well as that, I do a lot of facilitation work. So I do a lot of training and trauma-informed practice and um, diversity awareness around gender, diversity and sexuality. Awesome. And you spoke before about how your work really involves communication and conflict management. What would you say the key conflict management and communication styles are that you see in your practice? In my practice, I don't really see people that have a lot of conflict management skills, I guess, um, <laughs> might be why they come to see me, mainly mainly because they haven't learned to have those skills because that is a developmental learning. We're supposed to learn that when we're young. The styles that I see, I would, I would put them beside 
survival strategies, you know, like survival ways of being. So you've got your, you've got your fighter, you know, as a conflict style who will come out fighting, who will just, as soon as they feel threatened or overwhelmed, uh, will defend, will attack. You've got your flight response. That's the person who, as soon as there's conflict or there's a level of discomfort, they're just, they're out of there, they're gone. You've got your, your, your startled freeze response, you know, which is deer in the headlights. I don't even know what to say right now. Like, I can't speak, can't move. And then you've got what we call the appeasement response or the fawn response, which is when someone feels they're moving into, you know, maybe conflict or feeling threatened or feeling unsafe, they they go straight to pleasing the other person because they've learned that they need to do that. If I make you feel good about yourself, I can survive you. So that might be their conflict management style, you know, like, yep, yep, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'll try to do better and going really to that sort of more pleaser response. And then the very last one would be um, the most primal response is nothing else has worked. I'll just shut the whole thing down and I'll just disappear inside myself and withdraw my energy as far as I can, you know, as deep as I can. And, and that's the kind of, you know, nothing much is happening on the outside. And often you see it as a real collapse. So I see that playing out in, in conflict management a lot, the survival responses. A lot of our listeners reached out and spoke about the struggle of setting boundaries and communicating their needs and conflict management. Why do you think so many people or maybe so many young people struggle with this? Well, I think it's the developmental stuff again. I think we're not taught how to have healthy boundaries. We're not shown when it's not mentored to us. You know, we don't get good examples of it. Like we're supposed to learn from witnessing, from experiencing, from having healthy boundaries set with us. As a teenager, we're supposed to push against those boundaries, you know, to to find out about ourselves, to learn more about ourselves. And if we haven't learned that, then it's very hard to know how to do that in in a healthy way. Um, We do walls instead of boundaries or we don't have any boundaries. I think another part, too, is that we have to know ourselves to even know what boundaries we need to set, right? To even know that we matter enough to communicate our needs, that someone's interested enough in hearing about our needs. So we've got to find that place of um, I'm allowed to take up space in the world that I have to get to know myself and, and get to know what boundaries do I even want. And how do you recommend young people find that confidence and that self-worth in order to set boundaries? So I think it starts with coming into self. Like, like who am I? Like, I work a lot with this beautiful model called the Wheel of Consent, which is Betty Martin's model. And in that model, you work a lot with finding out what is, what is my authentic yes? What is my authentic no? Like, how do I know it? How do I feel it in my body? There's lots of lovely exercises if you ever go to a Wheel of Consent workshop, you know, to, to explore what is my yes, what is my no? I think it starts with knowing ourselves, self-reflection. And we understand that a lot of your work surrounds complex trauma and those experiences. How do you think trauma may impact the way we communicate? Gosh, it can make it so hard, can't it? Like, I mean, the trauma we're talking about isn't the trauma of a bushfire, right? That that could be absolutely traumatic, yeah. But we're talking about interpersonal trauma. We're talking about trauma that's happened from people, often in the most formative years of our life, the earliest years of our life. And so, of course, it totally impacts 
relationships because we then go out into the world to have relationships with people. We're always interacting with people. There's a lovely quote from a a neuroscientist, um, Louis Cozzolino, who says, our brains were designed to function in a matrix of other brains. Like we're designed to connect with each other. And if you've had interpersonal trauma, then that gets really ruptured. So we don't know how to do that in a safe way. We're often defaulting back to that survival system of your fight, flight, freeze, appease, collapse. You know, we're moving between those because we don't know how to feel safe enough for long enough to learn something else. you got to start there, don't you? Like trauma takes us to that survival response. That becomes our default. Our brain gets wired towards that survival response. We're not in what's called the social engagement system. The social engagement system is the last part of us to develop, right? We're developing that towards our late 20s. That's our part of this prefrontal cortex. And that's like me and other in the world, like how I fit out there in the world, if we don't have an environment that feels safe enough consistently enough, then we might not be developing that optimally. We might be much more in that very individualized survival system. But then we're an adult or a young adult and we go out in the world and we want to be intimate, yet we have no real concept of how to do that safely for ourselves. So, you know, with trauma work, You've got to start with a place that feels safe enough first. So we talk about this window of safe enough, yeah, a window where we feel okay, that we've got to start there. And we've got to start noticing when we move out of it into a survival response and how to bring ourselves back. So we can move out of it into that kind of amped up, yeah, sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, startled, freeze response, or we can move out of it into that more shut down, um, disappear collapse response and there are indicators just before we get there that we're about to go to them so if we're trying to have a conversation with someone and we start moving out of that window like if I start moving up into my sympathetic nervous system amped up then I'll start fighting I'll start fighting the person we'll start arguing or I'll just I'll just leave I'll be like stuff this I'm out so I think trauma plays into this a lot yeah a lot And how would you recommend two people with different conflict management styles resolve their differences? Do you think some people are just fundamentally incompatible or is there always room to kind of work through that incompatibility? Oh, look, I'm eternally hopeful and optimistic. (laughs) I, I don't think people are fundamentally incompatible. I mean, I totally see the clashes. I really do. Uh, I think it's possible for anyone to learn about their conflict management style, particularly from a trauma-informed perspective, to understand, oh, this is what my brain's doing. Like, this is my nervous system. This is biological. So I don't know if you've heard of the polyvagal theory, but there's a fabulous woman, Deb Dana. The way she talks about it, I really like, because it's really understanding it's biology first, and then we make meaning of biology. So if my biology, totally unconscious within me, says you're unsafe, then I will make meaning of you're unsafe and I will respond accordingly. Biology first, understanding what my nervous system is doing. And if you've had a lot of trauma, then your nervous system is saying unsafe, 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 unsafe. But now you're like, oh, well, I kind of want to get together with that person. And yet (laughs) your nervous system is still saying unsafe, unsafe. And so we're going to react accordingly, even though our head is saying everything should be okay. Biology first. This stuff is not about Our later development, which is thinking, this is about sensing and feeling. That's kind of at the bottom of it all. 
What if the other person you're with isn't in a place where they feel ready to seek support and work through that trauma? Yeah, look, that's a good question because that definitely happens, doesn't it? I think then sometimes we have to come to a choice point. You know, if you're ready to do that work and to do your own self-reflection and to, you know, be working on your own stuff and you're with someone who's not, how far are you going to progress? I mean, it, the patterns are probably just going to keep repeating. It really, I think it does take two to be willing enough, you know, we do have responsibility for our behaviour. Like if I know that my system goes very easily to a fight response, I need to learn about that so that I can moderate that, I can mediate that because that is our social engagement system. We don't go around fighting each other all the time, hopefully. Yeah. And if, if say, if someone is having a conversation with their friend or intimate partner, and as you said, that window between fight or flight kicks in, do you have any sort of recommendations or strategies on how to, bring that back down or as a friend you notice someone else is having that response how do you navigate that sort of interaction I think there are some great very simple tools and I love I love this idea of this the window the model's called the window of tolerance where we do start to notice oh that person's that person's so moved out of their window like they're they're amped up or they're totally shut down if somebody gets triggered because when we're outside the window we're often getting triggered right triggering is always about the past so the very first thing is help them come to the present help them know where they are with you right here right now even get them to look around so this is our orientation response so as soon as you orient someone to where they are their brain can start to compute actually right now no one's attacking me I feel like they are but they actually aren't. So that can help them start to regulate. You get them to look around. You get them to be aware of what they can hear. What can they see? You know, what are they feeling as far as temperature or the clothes on their skin or the thing that they're sitting on or their feet on the ground? You know, you bring in the sensory information that says, actually, right now, everything's okay so that the person can regulate. Breath is a great tool. You know, if you're a mate, you might be like, come on, just come on, mate, take a couple of breaths with me, you know, just breathe because that's a fundamental resource for us. That will regulate our nervous system if we do it. Even just moving to a different place. If I'm feeling threatened right here and I'm moving out of my window and getting triggered, that's about right here. So you move me somewhere else. Yeah, as soon as my body's moving, it's like, oh, I'm doing something. That's great. And so it can help regulate. Move them somewhere. Go, go outside, go to a different room. Yeah, it can really help. That's really helpful. Thank you for talking us through that. Yeah. And uh, since a lot of your work is with the LGBTQI plus community, how do you see expectations around gender and sexuality affecting the way we communicate with each other and perhaps resolve conflict? Yeah. I mean, regardless of being part of the queer community, I think we've all grown up within a dominant framework. We've grown up within very... Um, polarized, uh, a very polarized culture, a very binary culture, a culture of men of this and women of this, male, female, um, heterosexual. These, these are our dominant frameworks that we grow up with. And of course, we can't avoid being affected by them. You know, their cultural frameworks, their religious frameworks, their family frameworks, education frameworks. You know, you're lucky if you grew up uh, and, and it wasn't so rigid. And so I think we spend the rest of our time undoing a lot of that learning that that 
deep, you know, implicit learning. We call it procedural, yeah? So it's just what we know, what we think we know. We have to untangle it because those binaries are really not helpful for interacting with other people because nobody really fits them. Uh, they're stereotypical. They're often very polarised. And I don't think they're good for anyone. I mean, within a patriarchy, we know that, you know, men are raised generally to take up more space in the world, to, you know, have um, more of a voice in the world, to have more confidence, to be more sexual, uh, to be more physical, all of that sort of stuff. And there's no, there's actually no reason, there's no difference between you know, all gendered people around things like physicality, sex, being empowered, being competent. There's no difference, actually. And yet we're led to believe that there's this difference. It's not true. We're living in a particular moment in time where we have a real construct around gender and around sexuality. That isn't true. It's just a construct. We made it up. Um, we don't have biological evidence for it. We're led to believe there's biological evidence for it, but there's actually whole brain studies looking at there isn't actually difference, you know, between a so-called male brain and a so-called female brain to use the binary. And we know so many people fall outside that binary anyway. We've got trans people, we've got non-binary people, we've got agendered people uh, who don't ascribe to any kind of connection with the concept of gender. So as soon as we come into expectation, we're going to limit people, we're going to make assumptions. And we do. I mean, I do. We do all the time. But I think there's this lovely term, cultural humility, uh, which you can apply to all sorts of, you know, frameworks around culture, which is just me being aware of what I carry around all that, you know, all that learning, all that indoctrination growing up within the culture I grew up in and just sitting back with it, like just sort of going, OK, I know it's there, but let's meet this person in a more open space. Let's be curious about, about them, not jump into assumptions. And do you see much tension in cross-cultural relationships? Yeah, I think I see a lot of tension at all the intersectionalities. I mean, you're going to have differences and each person comes with their own expectations or their own assumptions about whatever we've got, yeah, what this means um, and what that culture means. We're full of expectations and we're full of a lot of fear as well. Um, I love that idea of cultural humility because it, it's – as a white person, it's reminding me to not step in with all my assumptions and all my expectations and all my privilege. If I'm with someone, say, of a different culture, you know, to be in that place of more curiosity instead of, you know, taking that space. I see a lot of conflict comes through ignorance, just ignorance, just not understanding. And so as much as we can do to understand each other, to hear each other, to be curious about each other, I, you know, obviously that's all going to really help. And you mentioned intersectionality. Can you explain to our listeners what that means to you, what using an intersectional framework means? Yeah, it's being aware of that we're multifaceted beings. So I'm a white person, which gives me a certain amount of privilege in the world. I'm also now a masculine looking person as a trans man. Uh, my identity is a lot more gender fluid, but I look and present in the world very masculine. That gives me privilege within a patriarchy. Uh, that's one intersectionality, white, masculine, yeah. Um, I'm trans, 
So, you know, I, I lose a bit of privilege there going into certain environments, particularly if they're environments like on the beach and things like that, where you might take your shirt off or you might be in a locker room getting changed or something. Suddenly, you know, your privilege goes down as far as how safe you feel or how secure you feel. So it's looking at um, the multiple identities we have and understanding where we get more privilege um, from those intersections and where we get less privilege, where we're more marginalised. So obviously Aboriginal people in Australia, a queer Aboriginal person, a trans Aboriginal woman, for example, all the intersectionality there is going to lead to a lot more marginalisation, a lot more discrimination and stigma. So we're just looking at where these things sort of intersect. Do you think that people with more experience of intersectionality, does that change the way that they form their relationships or maybe how they interact with other people? I think so. I think there's more understanding. I think there's, I think there is more of a cultural humility that comes in. I think that's useful for relating. Yeah, I think it does broaden our, our understandings about human beings. I think it really helps us to just expand that out and be like, you know, this is one way of being, like being a white person, that's one way of being, being a person of colour, being a trans person, being a queer person, being a heterosexual person, being a person of spirituality, like they're all different ways of being. And we could get a lot more curious about each other. And before you mentioned like attachment, there's been a lot of buzz around attachment theory. Do you think that these kind of labels are useful for people to better understand their relationship style or do you recommend an alternative framework or no framework altogether? <laughs> Look, I think, uh, I mean, I work a lot with attachment theory and I think it's a useful framework. Uh, we we love learning about ourselves sometimes, you know, we like to, oh, what's my attachment style? <laughs> I think it's good to remember it's an attachment style. It's not the person. So you don't say, oh, you're so avoidant. It's like, well, actually, they might have an, an avoidant attachment style. Yeah, there's lots of other aspects of them as well. But attachments relating, as we know, to our earliest attachment experience and the research shows us that it does have an impact into adulthood and how we how we perceive relationship, how safe we feel in relationship, how we respond to relationship. So I think it's another tool uh, to get to know yourself in relationship, not to hang on to it too tightly, but to hold it loosely, be curious about it. It's interesting because we're not really just one attachment style. It does ebb and flow a little bit. I mean, you could say, yes, we, we, we probably have a default that we've learned from our earliest experience. That's what the attachment theory tells us. Uh, I, I like to be a little bit more open than that and because I think people then really hang on to that. It's totally possible to change your attachment style. It's not easy. It takes time, particularly if you've had childhood trauma around attachment. Uh, but it's totally possible to. We can learn secure attachment. We can learn how to have healthy relationships with other human beings. And just quickly, could you outline the key attachment styles for our listeners? Yeah. So you'd start with your secure, secure attachment. And then that would be, you know, you got enough. You got enough of the kind of attention and the attunement that you needed that 
that little kids need. Uh, and you only need, you know, they say around about 30%, right? That parents only need to get it right around about 30% of the time. So that's kind of a relief for all the parents out there. <laughs> Don't need <laughs> to be perfect. Not, yeah, it's not a lot of the time. You can get it wrong. The most important thing with attachment is that if you get it wrong, if there's rupture, that you attend to repair. That's the most important thing. That's what kids need. They need the repair. That's what adults need. They need the repair. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. So you've got your secure and then your insecure uh, goes into three categories. So you've got your avoidant, which is the, the infant didn't get their attachment needs met. That primary caregiver was not available for them. And so they learned to turn away from it. They learned to have to look after themselves. And that becomes a way of being where I don't trust that people are going to take care of me or look after me. I'll do it for myself. So in a intimate relationship that might be yeah I want it because people with avoidant attachment style get into relationship I want it don't know how to handle these emotions actually so I'm not available but I want it but I'm not available yeah very confusing for people um the second one would be what's called a anxious preoccupied which is when the infant got some they got some of those connection needs met but then they weren't there and it creates this kind of hunger this insecurity this clinging and you know this anxiety about is it going to be there do you really love me like that sort of that vibe which obviously you can see playing out in adulthood uh, and then the third one which came in later, uh, Mary Main brought that one in because she observed that infants also had an attachment style that kind of wasn't either of those and, and did really unexpected things. And they named that disorganized attachment. And that's very chaotic. It's often come about when the infant uh, had a lot of fear towards the primary attachment figure. So they were probably being abused, which obviously really disrupts that attachment experience and can cause this, this very disorganised or disrupted attachment style. And what do you think about this notion that you need to love yourself before you can truly love someone else? Do you think there's any truth to that? You're quoting RuPaul. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know who said that. but <laughs> Well, he says it as well. I think there's some truth in it. So therapeutically, I do a lot of work with people around finding that inner connection because all the stuff happening out there is external to me. And I've often externalized, yeah, people have often externalized themselves that it's all about other people. If only that could be fixed, I'd be okay. That's not true, is it? We know that because we go to a different scenario. Oh, same patterns. <laughs> we move countries. Oh, same patterns. Different relationships. Same patterns. So it's inside us. So we got to get in here inside us, make friends with that, befriend that, find some compassion for ourselves, find some acceptance of who we are. And that's a good place to relate from. And one of our um, listeners explained that her partner and them often get in heated debates and every time they get in a disagreement. So how can we have more sort of constructive arguments or disagreements rather? I would say finding a structure that works for you because I, as I've said, we don't learn this unless you were lucky. We don't get taught this. We don't get taught good conflict resolution. We don't get taught how to disagree well, how to debate things, how to have some emotional engagement in something without totally going outside that window. We're not really taught that very well. So I would say 
learning some skills. So a good skill is learning active listening. Yeah. Active listening is I'm going to just totally listen to you. I'm going to put all my stuff aside and I will reflect back to you what I hear to make sure I've really understood it. Like that's gold. We want that. We want people to listen to us. We want to be understood. So active listening is a really good skill to build, to learn. Getting some kind of structure around, okay, we're going to have a conversation that could very easily go outside that window. So let's let's give it a timeline. We're not going to go for five hours. Maybe we go for half an hour, you know. Let's build in some strategies around if we start going outside that window, we can call a timeout. We take a break. We get a cup of tea. We go for a walk. We do something, even walking around the block, you know. Come back into the window, carry on. Like getting conscious about it because we're not taught it. I like um, things like nonviolent communication. I think that's a useful uh, a useful framework. It's got great language in it. It's all about taking responsibility for your own feelings. Instead of you made me feel this, it's like, I feel this. I have a need around this. I'm allowed to request something from this place. I can't demand something, but I can request something. So I think that's a useful framework. So finding something that works for you and, and getting more conscious about it. If you're going to have one of those conversations Okay, we've got some structure. We know what to do if it goes wrong. I think also having a bit of a doesn't hurt, you know, what do we want to achieve from this? You know, a little bit of a goal in there as well. It's a bit cognitive, but I think we might need to be cognitive about this stuff because the the emotions will take over, you know. Next thing, we're just fighting. You've got two people outside the window and one's in fight and the other's in freeze and that's not a good scene. And before you spoke about the fawning response, so what is fawning and I assume it kind of aligns with the people pleaser kind of personality type or trope and why does some people have a tendency to put others needs before their own? Yeah it's an interesting one it's 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 come into the trauma literature uh, more lately we used to just talk about fight flight freeze Mm -hmm. yeah that was those were the three we all know about the three f's and then we started understanding okay there's actually a difference between a a, you know kangaroo in the headlights freeze and a bird in your hand freeze those are very different freezes one's active yeah tense the other one's collapsed and then we also started understanding that children and people in scenarios where they're trapped and they can't get away, they can't fight, they can't flee, there's a different survival response available, which is to appease, to to fawn over. Fawn's funny language, isn't it? We only use it because it starts with an F. It's <laughs> model. <laughs> I mean, I don't use it in my life. I'm sure you don't use it in yours, but it starts with an F. It means to fawn over someone, to make them feel really good about themselves so you can survive them, to subjugate your own needs so that you can survive them. I was just going to say I've seen it a lot in the um, all the discourse around consent at the moment that fawning can be a response if you're in a like a sexually vulnerable situation that you may kind of exhibit that fawning behavior in order to survive. Mm. It's a survival response and I think that's really important to get out there to people. If that has happened, that is not your fault. That is a biological survival response um, that our system goes, this is what I need to do to survive. 
and it will do whatever it thinks it needs to do to survive. Like we're survival creatures. We're, we're very primed that way. It's one that can create a lot of shame because then we go, why didn't I say no? Why didn't I do something? Why didn't I, like, why did I please them? Yeah. But that's, that's the fawn response. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one for people to start talking about and to really get the knowledge out there about it. And do you think it's through setting clear boundaries and maybe increasing, trying to increase your own sort of self-awareness and self-worth that you then start to combat that feeling of, I just have to do whatever the other person wants? Yeah. Yeah. That's the start. Finding your own ground. I love um, the wheel of consent model because it, it really goes into when I'm on the wheel of consent, I'm okay. Whatever I'm doing, if I'm consenting and they're consenting, everything's good. If I'm off that wheel, uh, that's when we start to get the problems. And part of learning about my own consent is learning what is my embodied yes and what is my embodied no. How do I know in myself whether it's a yes or a no? Because if I don't know, then I might move into appeasement because I feel like I have to. But if I know actually my body says no, then I can start learning to set boundaries with that. But first I've got to identify that in myself. So, oh, look, I'd recommend checking that out. Um, Betty Martin, The Art of Giving and Receiving, The Wheel of Consent. And that really goes into how to start recognising where am I on that wheel of consent? It breaks it down in a beautiful way. It's got four different ways that we can, we can give and we can receive and just starting to understand where we tend to sit so you could have a place on that wheel, which might be um, that I'm, I'm in a place of allowing. There's a big difference between I'm allowing this to happen, I'm choosing, I'm allowing this to happen, yeah, and I'm appeasing. There's a big difference between those two. Appeasing is I'm disempowered, allowing is I'm choosing this. So there's all sorts of delicious things that can happen when we might be choosing to surrender, but appeasement is different. Thank you so much, Dragan. Your insight has been so interesting and informative for us. One concept that really resonated with me was the idea of an embodied yes or no and enthusiastic consent. I think it can be really hard to reflect inwards and feel like you are making an authentic decision. I know it's something that I personally struggle with. I've kind of learnt through my research into gendered violence for my thesis that power dynamics play a big role in our ability to feel empowered when telling someone yes or no. If you know there will be harmful consequences for saying no, then it's not really a decision that's made freely. It kind of reminds me of um, Dragan's explanation of the fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses. Yeah, and that fawn response was something I had never heard of before, but as he explains it as that kind of response of people-pleasing, it definitely makes sense. And I think I feel like everyone does that. And there's a fine line between compromise and fawning. And it's sort of the idea of when you're giving up yourself and it's and the result is a detriment to yourself, that that's when it sort of shifts from something positive to negative. Heard that and I think it was an interesting addition. I think when we talk about fawning as well, like it can be really kind of constructive when we talk about sexual assault because a lot of victim survivors won't necessarily respond in a certain way and there's no right or wrong way to respond to an assault or a traumatic situation. So I think it 
kind of creates room to empower victims and recognise that everyone will have different trauma responses and that's okay. And none is more valid than the other. They're all justified responses. Yeah, definitely. I think as well the introduction of the idea of the window of tolerance was also really useful and helpful and um, I think it sort of gave a bit of explanation and a sort of a visual guide on maybe where we feel our boundaries socially in conflict. And some of the tips Dragan gave about taking time also really, really helpful. Yeah, I think as someone who always likes to resolve conflict in the moment, um, Dragan really reiterated how important it is to pay attention to how you feel. And um, like sometimes that's not always the best method. Sometimes you do need to step away, take a deep breath, like maybe come back to the issue a day later or at another point. And I think that was quite eye-opening for me to hear that that's not always the best method to resolve conflict. And um, not everyone is able to have a constructive conversation when you're in that emotionally heightened place. Mm, Yeah. And I think that it requires quite a lot of self-reflection and mindfulness to, in the middle of a conflict, be able to pull yourself out and like Dragan said, make a tea, go for a walk, take some deep breaths. It's almost like a, a meditation method of just sort of um, ground, as you say, grounding yourself. Even it doesn't have to be in conflict as well, just any sort of difficult conversation. It can't help, it can't hurt to take some time and allow your brain to settle and maybe reevaluate what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I was really keen to ask Dragan whether he thinks that some people are fundamentally incompatible because honestly, I I do believe that. I do think some people press each other's buttons and just really don't align. That's just um, kind of my personal belief. But it was reassuring, the fact that he said. It was. It yeah. was optimistic. It was positive. Um, and I guess like it shows the power of communication yeah. because it shows like once you understand how a person responds and you empathize and you listen that you can kind of conquer those issues and move forward with your relationship. Yeah. It just communication and, um, you know, I would never date a Gemini. Oh, never. Like that whole idea of, you know, I think it's a bit over the, like I I agree with Dragan that I think everyone can find a middle ground. Maybe some would struggle more than others, but yeah, the idea that everyone has the ability um, like I said, reassuring and kind of nice, bit opt- optimistic. It's a romantic, hopeless romantic, romantic yeah, over here. That's it. But I think, I think also, um, if the other person isn't willing to kind of do that self introspection, willing to learn, willing to confront their own trauma and emotional responses that might not be constructive or might create more conflict or um, or harm in some cases, like I think it is really hard. I think. Two people really need to be on the same page with that. And um, if you've got one person who is and the other person that isn't, I think that can definitely um, create a barrier. Yeah, definitely. Because it's at that point, you, you, the two of you aren't communicating effectively. It's one person attempting and maybe the other person's not listening or like at that point the communication breaks down. And then it also like when you think about gender, it's like like going to therapy is so stigmatised for men that it can be like, really hard for men to kind of either access support but also do that kind of introspection introspection yeah. and self-reflection and like have the self-awareness to try apologize for their actions or understand that some of their behaviors might be harmful and empathize um, just because men aren't socialized 
to have those skills and to communicate as openly as women are. So yeah, we want to thank Dragan for coming onto the podcast. It really enjoyed the chat. And I think some really important takeaways after the interview that really changed the way I thought. A hundred percent. I said after that I'm going to book a session in with Dragan. <laughs> I'm coming up the North Coast to yeah, visit, visit him. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like our interview was a makeshift therapy session for me. Yeah, we're lucky. <laughs> we're a free therapy session. Yeah. So thank you once again. Thank you for listening. And we're just going to chuck it to Nina if you're um, interested in accessing some resources around this topic. So take it away, Nina. Hey, everyone. If there's one key takeaway from this episode, it's that communication is a skill that requires consistent work and refinement. Today, we chatted about attachment theory. If you're curious about your own attachment style, we've provided a link to an online quiz in the show notes. Also, if you'd like to try out some of the communication approaches we discussed, Dragan recommends looking into the Imago Dialogue. This is a communication strategy which assigns each person either the role of sender or receiver. Parties take turns to follow the three steps of mirroring, validating, and empathizing. We've linked a step-by-step guide to the Imago Dialogue in the show notes, so you can test it out in your own relationships. Finally, you'll also find a YouTube video on polyvagal theory if you want to gain a deeper understanding of the way trauma shapes our physiological responses. episode of Mates and Dates was hosted by Edward Giles and Jen Trimstra. Producers are Sarah Sue and Donna Siramana. Executive producer is Stephanie Aceglave. Additional production and mixing by me, Nina Longfellow. Special thanks to Natalie Patterson, Lily Giles and Dragan Zan Wright. Check us out on Instagram at Mates and Dates. Thanks for listening. <laughs>